that during the last few days, as we got closer to Mars and the dust cleared, that we see a lot of Martians standing there with huge signs saying Bradbury was right. <laughs> Or even Clark. <laughs> uh, so, and I've brought along today, I'm going to keep this short because I'd much rather listen to our scientific friends here today tell us about what's coming up this week. But I've, every time I get a group of people together and have them trapped in a hall like this, I bring a poem, see? And you can't escape me. <laughs> Luckily, it's a short poem, but it sums up some of my feelings on why I love space travel, why I write science fiction, why I'm intrigued with what's going on this weekend on Mars. And part of this has my philosophy about space travel in it. And if you'll permit, I'll read it to you. It's very, very short. The fence we walked between the years did balance us serene. It was a place half in the sky where in the green of leaf and promising of peach, we'd reach our hand to touch and almost touch the sky. If we could reach and touch, we said, it would teach us not to, never to, be dead. We ached and almost touched that stuff. Our reach was never quite enough. If only we had taller been and touched God's cuff, his, his hem, we would not have to go with them who've gone before, who, short as us, stood tall as they could stand and hoped by stretching tall that they might keep their land, their home, their hearth their flesh and soul, but they, like us, were standing in a hole. Oh, Thomas, will a race one day stand really tall across the void, across the universe and all, and measured out with rocket fire, at last put Adam's finger forth, as on the Sistine ceiling, and God's hand come down the other way to measure man and find him good and gift him with forever's day? I work for that. Short man, large dream. I send my rockets forth between my ears, hoping an inch of good is worth a pound of years. Aching to hear a voice cry back along the universal mile. We've reached Alpha Centauri. We're tall. Oh, God, we're tall. Welcome back to the fear of God, that weird, strange, macabre place where we explore the intersection of faith and fear, examining what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is our special Halloween bonus episode, and with you right now is one of your co-hosts, Reed Lackey. Now, typically with me, 
as you know, is one Mr. Nathan Rouse. In fact, he usually opens these, but he is actually not here today. And I know we do this bit every week, but listeners, he is actually not here today. So <laughs> with me, I have uh, a good dear friend, not only of myself, but also now uh, an official member of the Fogg family. He's joined us a couple of times. Very special place in our hearts. I have with me today, Mr. Bill Oberst Jr. Bill, how you doing, buddy? Reed, I'm doing great, man, and uh, happy Halloween to you and to your listeners. Thank you very much. Yes, so uh, we wanted to do something kind of special. All this month, uh, we, I, I had had the impulse not that long ago, uh, and I, I kind of twisted Nathan's arm, although I did not have to twist it very hard, to say, you know what, this October, I kind of just need this in my world and in my life. I want us to cover something wicked this way comes. So what we've been doing all this month uh, is we had four episodes and the first three of those were on different, you know, different special things. We had our 200th episode covering It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, which was a whole lot of fun. Um, and then we also, in each of those three previous three episodes, we covered a segment of Something Wicked This Way Comes, culminating in a full discussion on the book and all of its wonderful joys uh, that uh, aired just last week. So what I wanted to do for this episode, you and I, uh, and, and I have so few friends, actually precious few friends with which I could do this, and you immediately came to mind, where I was like, if I wanted to just geek out on all things Ray Bradbury for a good hour, like, there's so few friends in my world who would actually do that with me, who have you know read enough of the material and absorbed enough of the of the history and the uh, the style of Bradbury to really have that conversation. Um, and so I was like, I've I've got to see if Bill's available. So thank you so much for having this discussion with me. This is uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. Me too. So I want to set the scene for your uh, for your listeners. I, Please for this do. Yeah. Halloween broadcast. I'm in my little lair which is mm. my office, and I'm surrounded by all the things that I love. Uh, I'm surrounded by, let's see, I'm looking at uh, a fountain, which I've turned off of the sound here, but it's hot. It is Figment Ooh. from Epcot Center. But Figment is holding beneath his little hands the uh, Epcot Center spaceship Earth, oh, the dome. Wow. Uh, now, Ray designed the attraction that went within it, I have hmm. the original document that he wrote to Walt Disney Enterprises laying out the show, which is a much better show oh, than man. they've ever had. Wow. And as I walk around, I see a puppet from Disney's 2000 uh, celebration, the Great Millennial Parade they had, which Ray was also a part of planning. Oh, my gosh. I am looking at all of Ray's paperbacks. And then as I turn the corner, here's Ray's hardbacks. Oh. And um, some editions of Ray Bradbury comics. And... I'm holding in my hands now a piece of Ray Bradbury's house, one, part of the outer wall of the office. Whoa! Where he lived in Los Angeles, where he wrote most of the great things that we know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Somebody gave me a, a piece of the house after it was torn down after a performance of the Bradbury show. Mm. Um, so all around me, all around me are, and, and yeah, and here actually in my makeup kit are the Bradbury prosthetics that I use for the show. So I'm oh, literally surrounded awesome. by Ray. That's oh, so and finally beautiful. in front of me is a mint edition. One of my treasures of the uh, U S postal service did a series of stamps of great monsters. 
Oh, and they put I out a special this. sheet of them, classic movie monsters. Mm-hmm. And there's Karloff, and there's Lugosi, and there's Karloff Jr., I, I mean, Cheney Jr., and then there is Lon Chaney, whose performance in 1925 in The Phantom of the Opera, mm-hmm. Ray Bradbury saw with his mother at the age of, I think he was, no, yeah, he was five when that came out. He was three right, when Hunchback right. of Notre Dame came out. At the Genesee Theater in Waukegan, Illinois, mm-hmm. and at the Genesee Theater in Waukegan, Illinois, on that same stage where the movie screen once stood, is where I first performed Ray Bradbury's words oh, the year that he died, and that was the genesis for beginning the journey with his estate to create the show. So, I'm all of that is my long-winded way of saying that I am surrounded that's by beautiful. Ray Bradbury, and that's because I love what he represents mm-hmm. to my life. And Ray said, surround yourself with your loves. And so that's mm-hmm. where I am. Mm-hmm. Oh, that so is it's fantastic. Good. So it's good to be here talking about something that I love dearly. Oh, that is so exciting. That is absolutely thrilling. You know what reminded me uh, as, as you were saying this, and it's, it, it's so so beautiful and wonderful. Uh, I'm sure you watched, and I, I absorbed them, and actually just recently made my way through the entire run of the show this past October of uh, the Ray Bradbury Theater uh, that had begun as an HBO show, and then I think it was, I forget who picked it up after HBO dropped it. I think HBO had like the first four seasons of it and then they dropped it but then it was picked up for syndication and and for a few more uh produced episodes after that but the entire collection is available i think to stream on amazon prime and then i have a disc edition of it the disc quality is not great but i will never get rid of it because that uh collection is signed by ray bradbury and um, I remember when I brought it up, uh, it, was, it was at the Burbank Public Library where he was doing a signing. Uh, this was, you know, several years ago, obviously. And, uh, well, it's actually, uh, boy, time is getting away from me. He, he died in 14, I believe. And uh, so this would have probably been more around 2007, 2008, I think. I can't remember the exact year. He, he but, died in 2012. Oh, he died in 12. That's right. He didn't die in 2014. Oh, my goodness. That's yes. Yeah. So this would definitely would have been 2006, 2007. And so um, uh, I, I remember when I brought up that that disc collection to him, many, many people were having books signed because that was one thing. He was always very generous, even late in his years uh, with book signings. He would just be wheeled in in his wheelchair. They would prop him up right by the table and just line after line of people. And he was he always seemed so excited to see them and was always very gracious and generous with people wanting to take photos or, or wanting to talk with him about a few things. And I remember when I sat down the disc and said, would you mind signing this? Now, that at the time time was the fifth time I had seen him. He did not remember me. There was no, you know, it wasn't as if I had made a profound impression or anything, but he was struck by the fact that what I was signing was that collection. And he waxed on for probably about six or seven minutes there of just how special it was and and how he missed and, and wished that they could do more shows like this and, and wished that they could make more adaptations. I think one of the big disparities, and this is a bit of a weird tangent to go on, but one of the big disparities is there's actually not a significant amount of strong adaptation in film or television of his work. It's not completely absent. There's plenty of good things. Uh, the, the film The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit is a delight. 
Um, there's also the Something Wicked This Way Comes Disney production, which I, I enjoy. Uh, doesn't capture anywhere close to the impact that the book will have. Um, but, uh, but I've always been fond of that Ray Bradbury theater TV show. Have you, have you seen those? I'm, I'm sure you probably have. I have. And I didn't think that, um, I mean, the general, I, I only would have enjoyed them had I read the underlying piece, because as I'm right. watching them, right. I'm filling in the, 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 uh, the, the, the words, the pieces. This is the problem with adapting Ray. Mm -hmm. Um, he's a magician. He said, mm. I want to be remembered as your favorite magician. That's how he wanted to be remembered, was as a mm. teller of tales. Right. He was seduced by Hollywood, <clears throat> literally seduced. I mean, mm. he, was, he was completely caught up in the romanticized notion of film and Hollywood. Right. And so right. that uh, siren song led him to want to have his work adapted. But I don't mm. think he was ever, ever really successful. In yeah. fact, the, the Ray Bradbury Theater... Um, Ray lost interest in it as it went on, as as it became obvious that the adaptations were not going to. Right, they didn't right. have the money. They didn't have the quality. In fact, the beginning of it, where it's it's where the original idea was to have Ray speak each week about the themes of that stories, and so that's why they mm. filmed the very the very first one. You know, I, I'm Ray Bradbury, and I'm surrounded right. by the things I love. Then exactly. there was supposed to be a, a second follow up piece to that. And uh, they, they dispensed with that, and Ray said, "Well, you know, it's he, that's most he, of the point." Kind of stepped away from it. <clears throat> in fact, yeah. the shoot, little bits of odd trivia that you learn and study. <laughs> and the shoot for doing that introduction to Ray Bradbury Theater, where Ray is saying, "Hi, I'm Ray Bradbury." There's a shot where he's standing in the doorway. Uh huh. That's not him, because the shoot went on so oh. long that Ray, that Ray said, "I'm going home." <laughs> Uh, wow. He said, "I'm done." You're, he said, "You're many hours beyond." You know, you can just hear him. You know, you haven't sure, planned it. You're many hours beyond what you yep. said you were going to do, and I'm going home. I'm out of here. <laughs> and so, so he goes, and so they got uh, someone who was there working, who was about his size, to put on a jacket, and they did that shot. Oh, but that's, wow! That's, that's right. You know, he he waited in the green room of the Merv Griffin show the night that we landed on the moons he waited and waited and waited and waited and and uh, hours had passed since we landed on the moon and they hadn't had him on yet to talk about it wow. and he thought this is the most important thing that's happened in this century and he walked out and <laughs> the producer chased him down there and they said you can't walk out and he said the hell i can't that's right <laughs> <laughs> and he, he gets in a taxi cab and goes across the city to CBS. And he ended up that night um, being interviewed on CBS by Mike Wallace. Wow. wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. And I think I would need to do a little bit of digging, but I believe that video, the uh, interview segment is available on YouTube. If you do a little bit of scouring, I think it's still, I think it's still available out there in the little corners of the internet to be able to find. There's a poor, there's a poor quality version of it, it it's right. a, it's a, a film of it being shown on screen at a convention oh, I've yeah, yeah, yeah. i've looked and looked for the original because i really wanted it for background for the show but uh haven't been able to find it but there he sure. is but i did take almost everything that he said in that interview read mm -hmm. i lifted and, and put in my stage show because there's ray saying and i didn't i've never heard anybody else say this about the space race mm. he said this is a perfect moral substitute for war. 
Yes, that's we, right. We, we, yes. we have we have to kill something. We have to kill something. We have to have an enemy. And here in space, in the universe, we have the perfect enemy. And this, if we pursue it, will make us less inclined and may even end war. And he was uh, very right. excited by this idea. Yes, he was. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and you know, he had, he had spoken at length. And I really, man, I cannot wait to talk to you more about your show. Um, the, the, he's talked at length in, in a, something that has always been very inspiring to me. Uh, the idea of how, you know, the further we get into space and, uh, you know, we, we go on and we'll colonize Mars and then we will, you know, conquer and in, in, into the planets beyond and therefore live forever. He saw this. I don't know if you would contextualize it the same way, but it always seemed as if he saw this as the, the future of humanity and as our ability to be able to explore and make that frontier our possible future. And I think he, for all of his days, viewed that as, as one of mankind's greatest hopes in terms of the just practical achievement, more so than, you know, continuing to combat each other and try to climb competitively over one another. He said, we have to do it or we're not going to make it. Right. He said, we're, we're right. going to destroy this earth. That's going to happen. And if that doesn't happen, if we don't destroy the earth, then eventually the sun will go out. It will blink mm. out. Mm. And we have to go into space if we are going to survive. It's, it's the natural next progression. Yeah, he firmly believed it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, tell me more about your stage show. Now, when you were on uh, some time ago, several months ago, before we were, it was actually probably about a year ago now, because it was before we were uh, in the throes of, of the, the, the global pandemic that we all have been suffering through this year. Um, you had mentioned your stage show. We talked about it uh, a bit briefly, but uh, go into it a bit more, uh, a bit more detail. You've, you've touched on its inception and the concept and everything, but, but uh, how exactly did this come to be? What's the concept? of it what's the specific thrusts talk as little or as much as you want to about this wonderful stage show read i got tired like i got tired of waiting for somebody else to do the damn thing <laughs> right. i just got tired yeah. of it yeah the man sure. died in 2012 if there's mm -hmm. anyone who's ripe for a solo stage performance as exuberant as he was it's right, ray bradbury right. yeah so absolutely. i talked to several people um one gentleman who had actually worked with ray was very close to ray looked like Ray mm. um, and, and I and was close to the family. And I remember speaking to him sitting down at a coffee shop down from my place in Hollywood and, and saying, you should do this. And so there was talk of it and nothing ever happened. And I talked to someone else about it, another actor. And they said, well, yeah, someone should do that. And I was like, you know what? Like everything else in my life, nobody would ever hire me for anything, Reed. Mm. Nobody. So I hired myself. That's always been, that's always been, why, why am I waiting for somebody else to do this and frustrated that they won't? Why don't I just yeah. do it? So right. I thought, okay, yeah. Billy, you don't look a thing like Ray Bradbury. <laughs> You're his height, but that's it. <laughs> can you, can you do the voice? Yeah, I can do the voice. Can you capture his exuberance? Yes, I can sure. capture his exuberance. Do you have an understanding of his core message? I think so. And with research, I know that I can gel that down. I know how to put together one-person shows. I've done this for years, and I've done it seven other times successfully. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, the only obstacle from this is I cannot have a Mark Twain, Hal Holbrook-like transformation on stage where I actually become mm -hmm. him. Right, 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 right. And so I thought, the hell with it. I don't care. 
Right. I'm going right. to try this. And so I put together a um, proposal, sent it to the family, uh, the estate, and we started the process with this literary agency, Don Kahn and Associates in New York, and it took three and a half years to mm. uh, get a version of the script everybody was happy with. My mm. script advisor, thank God, my script advisor was Dr. Jonathan Eller. Oh, a, yes, I know. Okay. A uh, so scholar Jonathan, of, of Bradbury's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, the primary Bradbury scholar, I think, in mm-hmm. the country. He founded the, uh, co-founded and ran until just last year, the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies at Purdue University, mm. in Indiana, and in Indianapolis. And this is the repository for all of Ray's books, his papers, his mementos, his awards, his recordings, his ties. Oh, everything. wow. His entire Los Angeles office was packed up, transported, and recreated in this Center for Ray Bradbury Studies at wow. Purdue in Annapolis. So John agreed to be my script advisor, mm-hmm. and we worked for three and a half years, and we put together the script. Then I had to figure out how am I going to mount the damn thing. Um, <laughs> right. And I thought, well, I'll take it, uh, you know, I'll take it off Broadway. So I went up and did some, uh, some readings in New York City, and they were well-received. Mm. And uh, then I started looking into how much it would actually cost to do it off-Broadway. And I thought, you know, do I want to spend five years trying to raise the money to do this off-Broadway? No, I really just want to start doing this thing. Like Ray right, said, doing right. is being. Mm-hmm. So uh, I thought, okay, I, what do I need bare minimum? besides myself well i need a soundtrack and i need uh i need some visuals behind me and so i thought all right what if i rear screen projected so i found a gentleman named christopher cooksey who's a wonderful visual designer who would actually work with ray before he died and christopher put together my background visuals so essentially i'm performing to a 90 minute movie oh i see i put this word out on the web and i got a call from a guy named Brian Lee, a mm. huge Disney Epcot freak like me, oh, wow. retired engineer and composer in Florida, in near, near Orlando. And he said, I want to do the music. And I mm. said, I cannot afford to pay you what you're worth. Uh, yeah. And he said, I want to do this for Ray. Mm, wow. And he did. So he did an entire score. So that's what I have. Uh, it's all Ray's words. It's Brian Lee's music. It's Christopher Cooksey's visuals. And uh, yeah, it's about a 90-minute show. I debuted it in Los Angeles and have tinkered with it and toyed with it. Did it in Indianapolis at the Bradbury mm-hmm. Center. And I've done it, I guess, maybe 12 times since then. Most recently, a successful run in Atlanta. Oh, We, okay. sold, we sold out. And then uh, COVID hit, and I lost all the rest of my bookings. Oh, yeah. So that's pretty devastating. The show, like all live theater, the show is on hold right now. But sure, of course. When I started out, I thought, well, this is going to be kind of like a, a lecture by Bray, you know, because he, hmm. he could come across as, as uh, professorial. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I did that, and then I got a re- review. I did it at the Spoleto uh, international festival and i got a review that said ray bradbury resurrected from the dead for lecture a new show and i thought oh that's not good that's not gonna uh, work mm, it's too yeah. much like a lecture mm. so then i started getting into ray's poetry 
And that's what led to the version of the show that I now have that works. It opens with this poem, Remembrance, and Mm. it ends with this poem, If Only We Had Taller Been. So Ray's poetry was the key, the the, the missing piece. Mm, That makes Um, sense. that's, that's, That's the long version. The short version is, even though I have no right to, I, and even though many people could do it better than me, I play Ray Bradbury on stage. Mm. Oh, man. What a, what a wonderful delight to just be able to know that you've and, – and what a labor of love. And that's the thing that I think has always drawn so much of his – you are honoring the spirit of Ray Bradbury by making this about falling in love. And that's what it, that's what it really sounds like is just in, in love with his words, in love with his impact, in love with what he was about. I remember, and it, 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 there would be some, I imagine, who might sort of uh, turn an awkward uh, smile at, at this phrasing, but I remember when he narrated the audiobook of Fahrenheit 451, and that's the version of the audiobook that I have, is the one that he reads himself. And after the book is finished, there's about a 50-minute interview with him. And he's asked the question, how do you want listeners to uh, receive this material? How do, how do you want them to uh, engage with this reading of Fahrenheit 451? And his response is, he says, make love to me. And, I, and he doesn't mean it in this, you know, sort of uh, bizarre, uh, you know, fantastical or, or obscene way that some people might take something like that. He really was just, like you said, surround yourself by what you love. Uh, make what you do a labor of love. Love life, you know. Yeah, go ahead. And that's what we've done. We have, we have uh, balderdized and vulgarized um, the entire imagination so that mm-hmm. you can't say make love to me without those images coming to mind. Right. We've lost our right. poetic soul. As a culture, mm. we've lost our poetic soul, Reed. That's so true. And, so true. And that's why I think now more than ever we need the spirit of Ray. It was just about love for him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it really was no it really was i had um do you know his poem doing his being uh i'm i'm positive i've read it but i can't recall it i won't torture you by reciting it but later on I oh will. go ahead I, I, no absolutely uh that's what this is about actually if you if you wouldn't mind uh perhaps just an excerpt of it if you have it uh in pocket i would i would love to hear part of it it's short enough to do sure. to do it here it is Doing is being. To have done is not enough to stuff yourself with doing. That's the game. To name yourself each hour by what's done, huh? And to tabulate your time at sunset's gun and find yourself in acts you could not know without the facts you wooed from secret self, which much needs wooing. So doing brings it out, kills doubt. To not do is to die, or to lie about and lie about the things you might do someday. Away with that! Tomorrow unborn stays, if no man plays it into being with his motioned way of seeing. Let the body lead the mind, blood, the guide dog to the blind. So then practice and rehearse, find heart, soul's universe, knowing that by running, jumping, seeing, doing is being. Oh, man. That's wonderful. That is so wonderful. So that was it. That was it for Ray. If you're not doing it, you're not being. You're not yeah. existing. No, that's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you know what's 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 really interesting? So as a creative spirit, one of the things that I find 
extremely inspiring about Ray and something that in my own writing helped me significantly. And I'm, I'm by no means a case study in, in successful writing, but the, the ability to, one of the things that, that he captured and sort of gave me permission to do so well is he talks in his book, Zen in the Art of Writing. He said, you know, t- take any idea. He said, people uh, try to restrict your emotions and your thoughts. He said, if you're mad about something, if you're, and I'm paraphrasing egregiously, but if you're mad about something, uh, if you are in love with something, if you are fascinated by something, throw it on the page. Throw it violently onto the page. Um, let, your, let your passions and let your feelings just come unbridled uh, to the written word and, uh, and, and don't restrict yourself from the thoughts or from the things that uh, might be connections. Don't, don't put it in ways that you feel like, well, I should do this or I should do that. Just, you know, to, to what you were describing with the doing is being like, just, just do it. Just, just put it there and just, just push it. Uh, this is the spirit and the vibrance of life and just plant it on the page and see what grows. Um, and I've always found that really, really engaging uh, because I feel like a lot of times what hangs us up from the doing is being I- idea is we are so afraid of failure. We are so afraid of getting it wrong. We're so afraid of, of taking the kinds of risks that will make us look foolish um, that we wind up never really getting to do and be the things that we love because we simply uh, are, are too afraid it's going to make us uh, look bad in, in the overall sense of, I guess, our friends, our culture, our family, or whatever it is. Um, and so I've always appreciated the spirit to say, that no, just do it. Just, just go and do it. It's a very yeah. He he called it uh, vomiting. He yes. He was, yeah. You know he was he wrote about sweat. He wrote about vomit. Mm-hmm. Um, Ray was very. He was he wasn't a high minded writer. He he talked about the physical stuff in the bodies that we live in, and vomit was his metaphor. Mm-hmm. He referred to Abraham Lincoln's. Abraham Lincoln used to tell an anecdote um, called, uh, about a little girl who had eaten raisins and. They were bad raisins in some way. They made her vomit. And she mm-hmm. vomited and vomited. And, and she looked at what she put out. And she said, well, I think now we're down to the raisins. <laughs> and, and, and Ray said, he said, you literally have to, when something's in you and it's, it's making you have a strong feeling of love or hate or grief, get it out. And mm-hmm. then you can pull through it with your fingers and go, aha. So mm-hmm. that's that's what it was but you'll never know unless you regurgitate it that's if you try to hold it in and try to pretty it up and make it perfect so he would blurt out these things you know he's on a television show when he got word that uh senator mccarthy had died Mm, of mccarthyism fame and they told him you know senator mccarthy is dead and ray said good i'm glad right (laughs) and there's this pause and the host said, well, God rest his soul or something like that. And mm-hmm. Ray said, I'm sorry, but he was a bad man. And a bad yep. man who's dead is not any better dead than he was alive. And they went to commercial. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> oh, man. It's so true. It's so true. And I think that one of the things that – so, so I, I, I love that this topic has come up um, because I think one of the things that we have – done to ourselves is we've 
So a couple of things have happened. The first thing that have happened is we have uh, sanitized language to such a degree that uh, now everything has to be very precise or you run the risk of people hearing what you're not saying and you run the risk of uh, lack of clarity and misunderstanding. And you can see particularly with the propagation of social media and with how um, discourse no longer takes place in a context like this, like a, a conversation, a sharing of ideas, a rebuttal of ideas, a pushing back and forth of exactly what we think and what we feel. Um, instead, it has to be uh, what what you hinted at earlier, it has to be like so perfect and we don't we don't vomit anymore. But what what's ironic about that is that reactions are vomitous. So what will happen is somebody will say a thing or present an idea and the reactions and the, the corresponding uh, commentary to it will be very uh, uh, trite and plastic, and it, but, but also very venomous and very full of spite and bile. Um, and what that's done is brought us to a place to where, again, I, I feel we've really sanitized our ability to have an honest-to-God, flesh-and-blood conversation about some of these things. And then you have the counter to that, where the pendulum is swinging almost in the opposite direction, to where now what you have is, uh, and, and I'll get back to Bradbury's McCarthy comment in a second, where almost insensitivity is, is idolized, to where now uh, you have, and, and, and you know, we, we don't have to and won't get uh, uh, you know, hyper-political in this conversation, but you know, the, the rise in the administration of like a President Trump and how some people have now taken it as a matter of pride or as a matter of, uh, of uh, dare I say, like admiration, as weird as it sounds, uh, to be insensitively offensive. And what I want to return back to, something akin to what, Bradbury, I think, was hinting at in like his his observations about McCarthy because M McCarthyism nearly destroyed this country and it nearly just and, and it violated so much of our ethical integrity and there was so much that was just uh, and and for listeners who may not know what I'm talking about uh, that's the just look up like uh, the the communist red scare witch hunts of McCarthyism and uh, and you'll you'll kind of get some context for what we're talking about here um, but I feel like it's been very disheartening to a large degree to see the ways in which you will either be having a conversation with someone that's so sanitized it doesn't feel like you're talking about anything or so infuriating because there's almost this badge of honor to be offensive and insensitive. Um, and it's, it's, been, it's been discouraging to a degree to see how our language has devolved, which is why I think I love the way you put it earlier, and then I'll shut up for a second and let you respond. Um, I, I, I love the way you put it, how like we've lost our poetic soul, because poetry is not sanitized. Poetry is not safe, um, but we have lost our poetic soul, and instead what we're left with is uh, like a, a hyper-purel version of language or the opposite, where it is all just vomit. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I spewed off some off-the-cuff thoughts there. I'd, I'd love to know what you think about some of that. I, um, I think you're right. Uh, I think it comes down to grace. Um, mm -hmm. It comes down to a realization that you're going to die and uh, a rootedness in the, the, the shortness and the transience of life, the beauty of all 
life, love at the center of everything, those things will make you value not only your own life, but the lives of all creatures around you, the life of the planet. All life will become mm-hmm. sacred to you. And if yeah. all life is sacred to you, you're not going to um, poison your mouth by having poisonous words come out of it. Right. In- intentionally cruel words, which are meant only to hurt, I mean. But yeah, exactly. Right. And, and you're not going to poison your ears by taking them in, and you're not going to delight in it. Right. Um, that, right. That, but you only have that if you have... Um, a understanding of, um, no, understanding is not the right word, Read, If you have a uh, love for metaphor, mm. and a love for metaphor mm. is not something, you can't teach it in a classroom. That's true. But anyone can acquire it just by reading a poem or looking at the world in a different way or looking at an ant and thinking, I wonder what it feels like to be that ant. Mm-hmm. looking up at me, all these type of, of um, allegories, uh, analogies. Right, right. I work in the film business, right? I, I know you right. and, and, sure. and yeah. you write screenplays. You're very familiar mm-hmm. with it too. And I want your listeners to think about this. Uh, every film um, has a frame. Every shot has a frame. Mm-hmm. Life is what it is, guys and girls. Mm-hmm. Um, life is at root cellular existence until our cells stop and we die and that's what life is but the frame the frame is what matters Mm. um i think of uh the cross which to to me and i stole this phrase from oswald chambers my favorite devotionalist Mm -hmm. he said that the cross is the uh is the linchpin on which turns all of time and eternity well that's a metaphor that's a metaphor to think of of, of the cross as a symbol and to have it at the center and everything else spinning around it. Mm. There, there are many other such metaphors, ways to see the world, but you have to have a frame in which to put the world and your frame can't be just other people are wrong. Right. That, mm. That's a very, right. uh, it's mm. a, it's a balsa wood frame. It's really mm. easy to crack and break, and then you get mad because it cracked and broke. Mm. But, it, but a durable frame is the poetic way of looking at the world. You know, um, and then I'll shut up. No, but you're good, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm looking at the cover of the Martian Chronicles now, That the, the famous cover of the Martians looking up yeah. into the sky. Those orange, those golden images, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, raised Martians were tragic figures. Mm-hmm. And they were tragic because all of the things that they valued were delicate. Uh, crystal books, mm. which you lightly ran your hands over and the books would sing to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, houses that were intricately stacked and made of light, delicate materials, which you could easily fire a gun at and destroy. Mm-hmm. But you would destroy the beauty. Um, the Martian sand ships that would they were very light, very uh, uh, ethereal. You could probably snap them with your hands, but mm. they would take you across the sands, across the Dead Seas. So I, when you read about the Martians, there's a tragic sense to them, and there's a tragic sense to us yeah. because of our fragility. And if we don't have that tragic sense about us, we become 
hardened and our mm. words become hardened and yes. we lose the ability to even want to communicate in sentences longer than a few characters. Right, right. And 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 that's that's the spiral towards true death. Mm. Uh, I, I think that that Ray's ways of looking at the world, I know for me as a kid, I was so unhappy and they impacted me so much because they showed me other ways of seeing the world and they excited me and they thrilled me. And I read of the humans going to Mars and destroying all the Martian stuff just for fun. Right. And for profit, because we wanted to, because we could. Yes, and that, right. That seemed so true in my soul. I thought, yes, I'm only 14, but this is what I sense the world is. There's a tragic, mm. there's a tragedy at the core of our existence. And, and Ray is speaking to me of that. And I'm saying, yes, yes, it will help me to be a fully rounded human being to understand that at my core is tragedy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. And I think I've referenced in, in listeners may know I've referenced uh, before that uh, one of my very favorite stories, and it is, it's one of the final stories in the Martian Chronicles, um, is There Will Come Soft Rains. And one of the things that haunts me, uh, but it, it puts an ache in my spirit as well. Ray had that capacity to just put this really sort of lovely ache in your spirit where you find it beautiful and there's a melancholy to it there's an inspiration to it but there will come soft rains i'm sure you remember is the story of the house the the electronic technological house that carries on about its business of making breakfast and making coffee and reciting poetry and turning lights on and electronic equipments long after the humans have uh since moved on departed and and whatever else and what strikes me so much about that you talk about the tragedy of the martians and I feel like that resonance of, I'll say it this way, and this is, this is perhaps a bit of a bold statement, but I think I just love the way that uh, you've articulated here and the way Ray was so good at sort of contextualizing the temporary, uh, the, the fragility, I was trying to find a synonym, but fragility is the perfect word, the fragility of our existence and of all the things that we try to make ultimate things in all of our pursuits. Um, the, the conquests that we think are so vital or important, uh, when in point of fact, they are really just houses of cards and they, and they will amount to very little in the, in the long game, uh, the long story of life. I think that's one of the things I had just recently, our listeners have been going through something wicked this way comes with us, but I had reread the Martian Chronicles and was so struck by how many stories have that, that ache, that, that sense of, of loss in a book about ostensibly about uh, progress, about, about uh, space exploration and colonization and everything. But, but every story is saturated with this sense of loss. I want to I say one more thing about metaphor, and then um, I have something I'll pivot over to you. Um, I've, I've said before, listeners are probably sick of hearing it by now, that I just, as, a, as a, an absorber of story, an absorber of media, I am 
uh, very comfortable. I am in love with metaphor. I love metaphors. The very first things, the very first metaphors that connected with me, this is going to sound hyper-spiritual. Listeners, forgive me. Friend, Bill, forgive me. But uh, one of the first metaphors that, that connected with me were actually scriptural ones where Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven is like this, where he says, consider the lilies and, and where um, you know Christ's teaching so much of it fundamentally was metaphorical. He pointed to things, pointed to stories, pointed to occurrences, and said, look at this. This is what it is like. And uh, even a recognition, scripturally speaking, that some people are not going to grasp it, and some people are not going to understand it, because it's not really something that can be carefully calculated and carefully uh, restrained and confined. Uh, you just have to look and, and consider the lilies and something will shift and change in your spirit and in who you are. And one more thing, speaking, speaking about the fragility that, um, that Bradbury had articulated, two, two of my favorite stories as well, which I'm, I'm sure you've, you've heard um, or read before. Uh, one of them is Picasso Summer. And the other one is uh, the foghorn. Both stories of of these profound bits of beauty. Listeners have heard me reference them in different contexts before. But Picasso, summer the story of a man who is in an estranged marriage with his wife, goes walking on a beach and uh, a beach in France, I believe, and then stumbles upon the great Pablo Picasso drawing pictures in the sand. And they don't exchange any words. They just they, they, he just sees it and he sees the art and uh, they have a moment you know, together, shared understanding, and they move on. And the story ends by him sitting at dinner with his wife. And he has a, a pause because he hears the tide coming in. And all that beautiful art that a master had done is, is going to be washed out to sea. Again, the impermanence of it. Uh, Foghorn as well about where a beast, a, a, a Leviathan kind of rises when he hears the sound of a foghorn. And the, the lighthouse keepers realize very quickly that uh, he, uh, this big creature, this dinosaur kind of leviathan creature, uh, exhibits the same sound vocally as the foghorn itself. So they they connect the dots that uh, he he believes a mate is calling out to him, and that he believes uh, uh, he's found a friend or a lover or something. And uh, and in retaliation for realizing that it is just a plastic thing or not a plastic thing, but it is just a, an intangible and an inanimate thing. Uh, he, he smashes the lighthouse, smashes the horn and, and retreats back into the sea. And the story ends with them just befuddled, stunned, standing there, wishing there was something they could say. Um, and again, it's, it's as a final button on that note, uh, before we, we perhaps move on, um, the true power of really coming into terms with the fragility around you and of recognizing these things are precious and careful, therefore must be navigated with care, treated with care, and that your own life, that you, you, you must recognize that you are going to die. You must recognize that these, these ends to which we so frequently cast all of our attention and time uh, ultimately amount to, as Ecclesiastes tells us, a lot of chasing after the wind. And um, anyway, it's, I don't even know how much I'm, I'm actually saying. I feel like I'm just kind of dancing around in, the, <laughs> in all of these thoughts. Um, but, uh, but it is, it's, it's, it's profound and, and powerful and, and, uh, and very inspiring to me. 
Um, I have a, I don't know exactly precisely how much time you have left. I know our, our time is maybe not coming right to an end, but, but is, is somewhat limited. Um, I want to uh, speak for a few moments, maybe to bring us back up into the more shallow waters a bit, or they can go back deeper if we want to. Uh, do you have, you've studied Ray Bradbury extensively. You have, um, you know, obviously put together and helped to craft and script a stage show, ex- not only about his life, but presenting and exhibiting his uh, personhood uh, to a large degree. Do you have uh, favorite particular stories, works, books, anything? I don't know if I've ever asked you or if I know if you have particular favorites. I have so many. Um, so many um, you know when you love a thing when you love food you have so many foods that you love right but uh, like all people my the time when my personality was being formed is when I formed many of my loves and so I am partial to uh, the stories that were collected in the old Bantam paper books that was a series Mm. which had a common illustration on the front of Ray looking up right toward the sky you know what I'm talking about I do. Uh, the first one that I got was S's for Space, and uh, when I mm-hmm. found it in the woods, and when I first opened it, the first words that I read were the beginning of Pillar of Fire, mm-hmm. and I devoured Pillar of Fire that afternoon. I think I read it every day for a week before I moved on to other stories, and so Pillar wow. of Fire remains a favorite. The Foghorn remains a favorite. Ilya from the Martian Chronicles. Oh, I'm, yes. Um, I am particularly drawn toward his stories that create that that lovely ache mm-hmm. that you described. Um, and I'm drawn to that lovely ache in all of my work and all of my life. Right. right. That sort of uh, bittersweet melancholy. I don't really trust anything that doesn't include that sense of imminent loss because that, mm-hmm. I think that's what makes life precious. So yeah, to answer your stories, the, uh, the, the old stories in the Bantam paper books, most of which were created when Ray was in his 30s, late 20s, 30s, mm. uh, Pillar of Fire being chief among them, and then uh, many of the Martian Chronicles. Foghorn made me cry. Oh, uh, it's a yeah. lovely story. Lovely you story. know, um, uh, uh, to your readers who may be only slightly familiar with Bradbury, uh, uh, maybe we should recommend some of the... Like, oh, the I'd love that. The core short stories, and I would, so I'll nominate Foghorn mm-hmm. um, for that, and I'll also nominate A Sound of Thunder. Yes, yes, um, absolutely. What would you nominate for people who just had wanted only a handful of Bradbury stories to get introduced? Sure. The, uh, I think a vital one would be The Velt. Uh, the Velt is one that I think it's it's a little bit more of his one of his horror stories, not quite so attuned to the emotionality that you and I have been describing. But I think the Velt is uh, is is a pretty uh, crucial Bradbury story to uh, to encounter. And I think the other one that I would give uh, is is actually the Man, uh, particularly for our listeners. And I feel really remiss and, and kind of going to have to give my Bradbury fan, fan card back because I cannot recall at the moment which collection the story The Man is in. Uh, but uh, The Man is a story about uh, space travelers who arrive at a planet and they very quickly ascertain once they've arrived at a planet that a figure has come to the village that is on this planet that may in fact be Christ himself. And I won't share where the story goes, but uh, that has been a story that's always 
arrested and galvanized my imagination. I had referenced earlier as well, uh, there will come soft rains, which I think uh, definitely uh, encapsulates that that ache that that we've been uh, scratching at as well. What about what would you nominate for uh, longer form works? Like maybe two two books that you said like okay well these these two books uh, a bit longer because he was primarily a short story writer that can't be ignored. Um, but uh, either a collection of his short stories or the uh, one of one or two of his novels. What would you nominate as essential among those longer works? Oh, that's easy peasy, baby. Uh, Dandelion yeah. <laughs> one. Dandelion mm. wine and something wicked this way comes because they are mirror images of themselves mm. set in the same uh, fictional town based yeah. on his own hometown. Some of the characters have similarities and um, it's, the sm- it's the light side and the dark side of small town life. Yes. So yes. those two, in fact, reading those two back to back is quite a wonderful experience. Yes. Yes. I couldn't agree more. Um, I would also I would nominate, of course, uh, the Martian Chronicles, which we've we've referenced at length. The Martian Chronicles uh, is a, is a powerful and beautiful work, and then of course I feel like no Bradbury compendium would be complete without uh, a journey through the brief but impactful Fahrenheit four fifty one, which I feel like is his most discussed work these days. Uh, that's the work that gets uh, commented on the most, and and particularly because of its prophetic uh, you know, intuitions, the things that it predicted and its similarities to some of our present day struggles, uh, Fahrenheit 451 obviously has a significant resonance. And misunderstood. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Ray would argue, in fact, he walked out of a college lecture once because the professor who was leading the discussion of Fahrenheit 451 insisted that it was about censorship. And Ray said, it's not about censorship, it's about television. And the professor corrected him, and Ray said, I wrote the GD book, and he walked out. (laughs) That's right. He he hated it when people thought that Fahrenheit 451 was about censorship. He said, Mm. it's not about anyone having to ban books, it's about us becoming so entranced with... um, forms of entertainment that merely distract us and require nothing of us, which right. for him was television, that no one will want to read books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the way that they had summarized in the, in the novel 451, where they've taken vast works of literature, like Shakespearean works, the Bible itself, and you want to talk about the Twitter phenomenon, like the way that it has you know, uh, taken down those massive texts into just two sentences of, of summary, as if that is all you would need. And I had referenced um, on an episode probably six or seven weeks ago now to our listeners um, uh, that, that the ending of Fahrenheit 451 is one of the most beautiful and lovely things uh, that I think I've ever encountered of just this, this collective group of people who have committed text to memory, committed this, this vast text to memory, and that there is going to be this sharing of story and this uh, recitation of language um, getting back again into, you know, sort of recapturing the poetry uh, and, and re-engaging with longer form, the, the, the power of literature, the power of literary ideas and, and poetic expression. It's one of my favorite. Mm-hmm. Everyone must leave something behind when they die, something their hand has touched. So your soul has somewhere to go. A lot of it will be wrong. 
but just enough of it will be right. And when people look, you're there. Mm, that's wonderful. That's so wonderful. Um, this, so, so this has been such a delight to me that I, I kind of don't want it to end, but uh, I, I, I feel like we've, you know, uh, had, had our dance through the, the Bradbury world uh, for a little while and uh, want to be respective of your time and of our listeners' time. Is there anything else that, uh, you know, particularly regarding Bradbury's work, uh, his life, anything uh, regarding your show, anything about that that we haven't touched on that you'd like to, to mention to anybody, either by way of recommendation or, or exploration? I would just like to encourage people to use books and libraries the way that Ray said they should be used. And it was mm. this. When you walk into a library, pull down a book. Open the book. Don't start at the beginning. The good stuff's never in the beginning. Mm. Open it. Right in the middle. Read. See if you fall in love. Mm. If you fall in love... Hold that book to your heart. Take it home with you and embrace its shining eyes and its smell of freshly baked bread. And if you don't fall in love, toss it to the side. To hell with it. <laughs> Pull down another. Mm. That's an exact quote. Yeah, Which exactly. I used yeah. in the show. He was, was jumping around being very exuberant when he said it. <laughs> he, hated, he hated reading lists. He hated anyone who would tell anybody else, Here's what you must be interested in. Mm, mm, so right, if, if right. I encourage people and especially to encourage our children to approach life and books this way. You, oh, I hate Shakespeare. I hate Shakespeare. That's because you haven't fallen in love right. with any of Shakespeare. And there's a lot of Shakespeare there. But if I tell you, you have to read Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> it appeal to you. Let me instead give you a book of Shakespeare, throw it open, and I guarantee you, you'll find something there that makes you say, huh, mm -hmm. I kind of feel that. I'm feeling yeah. that. That's so, awesome. A lot of this approach comes because Ray didn't go to college. That's true. And right, right, that, right. And so, you know, we're all formed by our own biases. If he'd been to college, you might have differently, but he educated himself in the library true yeah. uh, and 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 that's that's i think one of the main lessons that he leaves us with ray was a man with no college education zero zero days read in a college classroom ray bradbury right. never he graduated high school and that was it and he did yeah. the rest himself mm -hmm. so if if ray why not us uh, yeah yeah why not why not us but we have to do the work and i'll end with this the last time I was in Indianapolis at the Bradbury Center, Jonathan Eller had just finished the manuscript draft for his third and final volume of his Bradbury biography trilogy. Oh, Beyond Apollo. It's, yeah. That's right. It's out now. Mm -hmm. And this was a couple of years ago, and he had the manuscript draft, and we went to a pancake house, and um, he said, do you want to see it? And I said, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. So I'm flipping through <laughs> the pages. And he said, this was the last 10,000 words were hellishly hard, hellishly, hellishly hard. I said, did you ask Ray for help? And because we talked about that before, you know, talking to the subject that you're writing about. Right. And um, he said, no, because I know what he would have said. I said, what? And he said, do your work. Mm -hmm. 
I can't do your work for you. I did mine. Damn it, do your work. Mm. So then we went over to the Bradbury Center. And he said, I've got some stuff to do in my office. But he said, you know what, Bill, at this point, I trust you. And he just left me there with Ray's file cabinets, which has Ray saved everything, Reed. Mm. So John says, I got to go up to the office. He said, just, I said, can I look? He said, oh, yes, just pull open a file cabinet and have at it. So I pull open a random file cabinet, go to a random file, and there's the manuscript for something that Wicked This Way comes, mm-hmm. typewritten. Mm-hmm. And Ray was adapting it for some other purpose, for perhaps television or perhaps for the film version. But yeah. he's, he's striking through things, and there's whole sections X'd out with him writing, no, bad, why, mm-hmm. change, mm-hmm. page after page after page. And I just sat on the floor with tears in my eyes, with these pages in my hand, because there was the work. Yeah, wow. The, the, the beautiful poetic thing that I love, that seems as if it always existed, happened because somebody sat down and sweated and scratched out things with a pen, <laughs> right. wrote, no, bad, why? Yeah, and so John, wow. John comes back from the office and looks at me sitting there with the papers, and he just said, yeah. Mm. And I said, yeah, there's no need <laughs> to say anything else. Yeah. That's, that's, that's Ray. He inspires us to do the work. Yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful, wonderful coda. Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, for myself, I also, just because it hasn't come up uh, yet, you know, we, my favorite of his books is Something Wicked This Way Comes, but uh, something that I think, of course, this this episode is is going to air either on Halloween or the eve of Halloween, um, and I would highly recommend uh, if if there are those of you who have children in the house and have never checked it out, there's a wonderful adaptation of Ray Bradbury's book, The Halloween Tree, uh, that was mm-hmm. a, a wonderful animated version that Ray Bradbury serves as narrator for that production, and Leonard Nimoy plays Mound Shroud, which is a, a wonderful delight. Um, that that's something that I it has become a bit of a tradition, uh, either to reread the book or to uh, watch that uh, animated version, uh, one or the other. So, uh, if you're looking for something appropriately spooky uh, that is in the Ray Bradbury wheelhouse for today or tomorrow, then uh, then I would highly encourage that. And uh, Bill, I just can't thank you enough again for bringing your vast wealth of knowledge and experience, your uh, just your heart and your spirit to this conversation. This has uh, this this has just been a breath of fresh air for me with everything else that's going on. I am delighted to, to know that you are uh, well and that you're safe. And uh, I'm, I'm so, so pleased and privileged that you chose to spend uh, an hour of your time with me today. Thank you so much for taking some time it, out for me. It's been more than a delight. Thank you, man. Happy Halloween. You too. Happy Halloween. And listeners, happy Halloween to you. Uh, We will see you next week when we will be uh, resuming our regularly scheduled programming. Um, And uh, Bill, uh, just uh, in case listeners, in case this is their first encounter with you, I know you've been on the show a few times, um, but uh, where can listeners find the material that you're involved in and and, and where should they go if they want to find out about all things Bill Oberst? Uh, Just uh, go to my site, uh, billoberst.com, which is it's just one page. And then from there, there's a link to everything else. 
Got it. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. So listeners, check that out. Bill, as always, thank you so much and happy Halloween to you, my friend. I, I hope uh, you can enjoy something fun and uh, and appropriately macabre in the midst of all of this <laughs> crazy <laughs> madness that's going on. Um, uh, it's uh, I just, uh, I've, I've come to the place to where Halloween for me just means a bunch of orange lights decked around in my house, but it still fills me with a, a bit of glee. <laughs> <that I enjoy. laughs> me too. Um, all right, well, I love you, my friend, and uh, we will talk again as soon as we can. Listeners, thank you so much again for uh, listening with us and uh, happy Halloween to you. We'll see you next week. 